Amen. Please be seated. About every, uh, every six years, there's a debate that arises in churches all over America, and that is, when Christmas falls on a Sunday, should we cancel church? And the logic is this. It's a busy day. It's a travel day. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Children want to open their presents and enjoy their toys and families have traditions or you've got visitors in town and you know they're not going to want to go to church and you don't want to uh, leave them behind. You know, I, I get it. I have three sons. We have a big extended family and so all of those dynamics are at work in us too. They're all very pragmatic reasons. But are they good reasons? You know, in the early church, when there was persecution, when there was threat of arrest and the threat of, of even death for gathering in corporate worship, the early church still gathered in corporate worship. But modern Christians are so apt to allow convenience to trump obedience, aren't we? Just imagine telling a, a Christian from the second century who has risked life and limb to go to corporate worship that you're not going to gather with the church on Christmas because your children want to open their presents. Now, some of you are thinking, boy, the pastor's coming in hot this morning, isn't he? But this is a question that churches are dealing with right now, and maybe some of you are thinking about it as well. If you're wondering if you should, if we're going to gather in worship on the Lord's Day, on Christmas Day, the answer is, of course we're having worship on on Christmas morning, we would cancel Christmas before we would cancel Lord's Day worship. In fact, if it's not your custom to come to evening worship, I would say that's a great day to begin coming to evening worship and using that as an offering to Christ, giving of your time, giving of your, your opportunities for the glory of Christ. What we're going to be doing over the next couple of Lord's Days leading up to and on Christmas Day is looking at how certain characters in the scriptures celebrate Christ's incarnation. And I can tell you not one of them celebrated Christ's incarnation by staying home and opening gifts. They celebrated Christ's incarnation by worshiping. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks is, is the response to the incarnation that we see again and again in the Christmas stories. We're going to start today by looking at Luke 1, and we're going to look at the first person to react to being in the presence of the incarnate Lord Jesus. And of all people, it's the child, the baby in the womb, John the Baptist, and so let's, we're going to take a lesson from the womb this morning on how to celebrate the incarnation of Christ. We'll be looking at Luke 1, starting at verse 39, but before we do that, let's pray. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. God, we pray this morning that you would remove distractions and encumbrances and you would focus our hearts and our minds upon the celebration of the incarnation. There is nothing more worthy throughout all eternity 
than for us to worship Jesus now and always. In his name we pray. Amen. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I mentioned that there is some debate today among Christians about how to observe Christmas Day. Now, thankfully, we've settled that this morning, haven't we? We need to be in worship. But debates about the observance of Christmas are nothing new. You know, every year around this time, you start seeing articles or news pieces discussing whether or not Christmas originated as a pagan holiday or as a Christian holiday. The pagan holiday view stems from a Roman practice of celebrating the, the winter solstice. It, it was a, a feast called Saturnalia. And it was celebrated anywhere from mid-November through the end of December. And so some people have said through the years that that Christians sort of co-opted this pagan practice and replaced it with Christmas. Now conversely, some say that Christmas originated. It began as a Christian holiday going back as far as the 200s A.D. You know, the early church, less than two centuries old at that point. Uh, actually, it used to be a priority among them to celebrate the Feast of the Annunciation. That was when the angel came to Mary to tell her the good news. And they, they traditionally observed that on the 14th of Nisan on the Hebrew calendar, which would be around March 25th. So knowing the normal human gestation pattern is nine months, um, they dated the birth of Christ to nine months later and thus... Christians began to celebrate the incarnation at the end of December. Was was that historically the the date of Christ's birth? We have no idea. But as Constantine came to rule and sort of in the so-called Christianization of the Roman Empire, the feast of the winter solstice went, went away and the end of December became the standard time to emphasize the incarnation in the world. So even just by the end of the 200s, the end of the third century, the observance of Christmas among Christians became normal practice. Now, the church normally referred to it as nativity or advent. The term Christmas comes from a Roman Catholic word, the Christ Mass, and over time it it sort of morphed into Christmas as we know it today. You know, with that as background, it's not surprising then that there's been debate through the years about the role of Christmas or Advent or Nativity in the Christian church. So some do not acknowledge Christmas at all. In the church, you can look back just at the history in America uh, several hundred years ago to the New England Puritans 
it was against the law to, to observe Christmas because it was viewed as a Roman Catholic holiday. Uh, before you say bah humbug to those people, we need to realize that, that many churches have gone to an opposite extreme doing things at Christmas that the scriptures know nothing about. You know, Pastor Walton and I, I think the best way we could summarize it, we're not in the Ebenezer Scrooge camp or the Winter Wonderland camp. Um, but our, our, the best way we could summarize our position is we don't consider Advent and Christmas to be something that, we sh- that should alter the rhythm of Lord's Day worship, nor should we introduce things into worship that Scripture doesn't prescribe. But we also acknowledge the kind providence of God that there is a season in which even in our pagan unbelieving world acknowledges the earth-shaking magnitude of the incarnation, even if, even if the observance of it in our world is quite superficial. Excuse me. And while Christ's birth was two millennia ago, doesn't the entry of the eternal God into time and space and history and human flesh and his birth from a virgin's womb merit some occasional focused attention, regardless of whether or not the world out there has trivialized it with consumerism and hollow sentimentality? And if so, then why not preach the incarnation during this time when people are actually thinking about these things? And especially given the fact that that many folks will not visit the church again until Easter, why not proclaim the truths of the incarnation regarding a historical event which has been mythologized into meaninglessness in our culture but it's an event on which our entire salvation hangs, that Jesus Christ was truly born of a virgin, that God himself truly became incarnate. And so we're not bah humbug, we're not winter wonderland. We we see the kind providence of God to stir our hearts for a season and during the year to focus specifically upon the incarnation of Christ. And so as a church, we ought to labor to learn to celebrate it rightly. And today, a child is going to teach us. The in utero John the Baptist, just six months ahead of the Lord Jesus, leaps with joy from being in the presence of Christ. Just just let that sink in for a second. An unborn baby was the first person to acknowledge being in the presence of the incarnate Jesus. My goal this morning is that like John the Baptist, our sense of joy at being in the presence of Christ would be awakened and intensified as well. And we're going to look at three things this morning. First, we're going to look at at the the wondrous joy of the presence of Christ. Second, we're going to see that worldly wonders cannot provide heavenly joy. And third, I just want you to see that nothing's impossible with God. So first, the wondrous joy of the presence of Christ. In in this account, we have 
two women, both of whom by all human standards should not have babies in their womb. The first was Elizabeth, who had never been able to have children. She was past childbearing age. And yet, uh, with her husband, Zechariah has miraculously conceived and has been carrying in her womb for about six months the great prophet John the Baptist, the, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And the second is a relative of hers, but much younger, a girl, uh, probably a teenager, Mary, who became pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, Elizabeth's pregnancy was, was miraculous, but Mary's is infinitely miraculous because this is, this is conceived by the Holy Spirit in her with no man involved at all. Two pregnant women, two miracle mothers, both chosen by God to be the human instrument for the births of two very unusual men. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet who ever lived up until this time, and then his greater cousin according to the flesh, the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, Son of God, Savior of the world. Elizabeth lived up in the hill country of Judah, where her husband, Zechariah, served as a priest. Mary, as you know, was betrothed but unmarried, and she lived in Nazareth, a small town in Galilee, about 90 or so miles away. And as the story picks up that we read, Mary has traveled to visit Elizabeth. Now, what would make a pregnant teenage girl make this 90-mile trip? Commentators throughout the years have, have read this, and at least modern commentators tend to read it through the lens of modern America. And they assume that there was some level of embarrassment about her pregnancy. Maybe her parents sent her off, lest she be recognized in public for being pregnant outside of wedlock. I don't think that is right at all. Look down at verse 56. And Mary remained there for about three months and returned to her home. You know, if Mary were avoiding the shame of unwed pregnancy, she wouldn't have returned when the baby's three months along. In fact, that's just the point where the signs, the visible signs of pregnancy would have started to show. In other words, Mary wasn't going to be with Elizabeth to hide her pregnancy, as commentators will say today. She wanted to be with the only other person on the face of the earth who could really celebrate the miracle that she was experiencing. She wanted to, to celebrate with the only other person on earth who understood the joy that was hers because of this little one in the womb. And, and so Mary and Elizabeth, we see them celebrating together, and the joy is contagious here. Look at verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Why? Because he was in the presence of Christ. You know, John, John was a miracle baby, and his job, it, it wasn't just, this is certainly true, but it wasn't just that God was granting the desires of Elizabeth's heart by finally giving her a child. John had a job, and his lifelong duty was to point to the Lord Jesus, to draw attention to the Lord Jesus. And so in a, fa in a sense, John's leap is his opening sermon. He's here, the one that we've waited for for thousands of years is here. 
The church fathers used to say that John was the first person, first preacher in history to use the womb as a pulpit. Now, you, you might have trouble, uh, rightly so. You might have trouble wrapping your mind around how a six-ish month old baby in the womb uh, could be attuned to the presence of the incarnate Jesus. That certainly defies all logic. And yet Jesus tells us how this happened. Look back two chapters, if you would. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. How could a child in the womb know and rejoice in the presence of Christ the same way that you and I do? Because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. How? I have no idea. And I don't need to know. I just know that it happened. And so John leaps with joy in the presence of the same God, the same Jesus Christ, whom all the religious leaders and others for the next 33 years would stand face to face with and not have a clue who he was. It was because the Holy Spirit showed it to John. You know, apart from Christ and the working of his Spirit, men are naturally blind and dead, spiritually speaking. You know, Christmas is an indictment before it becomes a delight. It indicts us of our sin and our blindness and our darkness. And when we see that, when we see our need of a Savior, He becomes our chief delight. If you don't know that, if you don't see your need of a Savior, then then Christmas is about a lot of things, but is it about rejoicing in the Lord Jesus? No, probably not. It's about all sorts of other things like traditions and gifts and people, but ultimately it ought to be about a people who know our need of a Savior and we are filled with joy because God has provided that for us. And so think of the verse you hear often this time of year, Luke 2, verse 11, unto you is born this day a child in the city of David, a Savior. That's either no big deal or that is the most monumental news in the history of the world. If you don't need a Savior, you don't need Christmas. If you don't need a Savior, then all of this that we're talking about is just nonsense. But if you know the deep darkness of your sin, then your heart comes alive to think of Jesus Christ who took on flesh to bear our sins for us. I wonder, beloved, have you experienced this kind of joy that is found only in the presence of Jesus? It's the kind David was talking about in our Old Testament reading. Psalm 16, verse 11. You you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Joy in the presence of Christ is, 
in the Christian's DNA. As we spend time in his word, in prayer, in the sacraments, and with each other, we live in the presence of Jesus. Nothing can be more joy-inducing than that reality. You know, consider the joy that comes by meditating on God's love for you, that he sent Christ to pay the penalty for your sins. Uh, Consider the joy of knowing that you are loved by the God of the universe with a love that precedes time. It's a love that never began, and therefore it is a love that will never end. Consider the joy of having your sins blotted out and guilt and shame erased because Christ loved you so much to bear those things for your sake. You know, our Lord's earthly life began with great celebration. We see Mary, we see Elizabeth, we see John the Baptist, we see angels, we see shepherds, and they're all celebrating. In fact, everybody in the Christmas story celebrates except Herod. Does that tell you anything? But our, whole, our Lord's whole life was an uphill climb, in a sense, to a mountain of sorrow called Golgotha where he would bear the sins of all the elect. But even the night before that, the night before he would go to the cross, our Lord in the high priestly prayer, John 17, he prayed for you. And what did he pray? That his Father would grant us fullness of joy. And then we're told in Hebrews 12 that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Beloved, joy is central to the Christian message. It's central to the gospel. Listen to the words of the reformer William Tyndall, speaking of of Christmas, of of the incarnation. He says, "The, the euangelion, the gospel, is a Greek word and it signifies good Merry, glad, and joyful tidings that make a man's heart glad, making him sing and dance and leap for joy. For Tyndall, the, 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 the fact that a sinner could be perfectly loved by God and clothed with the very righteousness of Christ gave him dazzling happiness. And the same was true for John. That wondrous heavenly joy of knowing Christ filled his life, we could say, from womb to tomb. He he served the Lord Jesus faithfully throughout his life, and even when he was beheaded by, by Herod Antipas, it was his joy to be in service to his younger cousin. What did John pray? He must increase, I must decrease. That's the key to understanding and experiencing the presence of Christ is realizing that the only place that heavenly joy exists, this side of glory, is in heaven incarnate, in the Lord Jesus. There's this heavenly joy that can be found only in him. It may be in our DNA to experience that kind of joy if you're a Christian, but the problem is, you and I can get so distracted by the world around us, can't we? And we, we lose that joy. We, we don't often 
experience it. This is our second point. Worldly wonders cannot provide heavenly joy. Americans this Christmas are estimated to spend $950 billion on Christmas. And to be real honest, that feels like just my family alone. 42% of Americans will go into debt this Christmas. And sadly, what's going to happen is that about 90% of that, of what's bought, is either going to break or it's going to lose its luster very quickly. Parents know this. You buy your child a toy. First, he plays with the box for the first 20 minutes, ignoring the toy. Then he picks up the toy and he breaks it. You know, why is it? Why don't earthly joys have a longer shelf life? Because they are poor stand-ins for heavenly joy. We're so constantly hitching ourselves up to the empty wonders of this world, hoping that anyone or anything can finally provide solid joy and lasting treasure. But ultimately, in the end, we find ourselves emptier than before. For so many of us, we just think, you know, if my circumstances were a little better, I would have joy. That's not true. We, we read that in Psalm 16. We see this in John the Baptist. Real joy is not circumstantial. It is found in the presence of Christ. And as we come to him and spend our lives in fellowship with him, then in a very real sense, our souls are lifted up to heaven transcending earthly circumstances where we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Do you realize that? Uh, For for those of us who struggle for joy and and, and feel like we can spend more of our time gloomy and grumpy and critical and, and, and discontent, nothing in your world or your circumstances needs to change for you to have joy. Nobody in your life needs to change for you to have joy. You don't need a different story or an easier life or more money. You don't need a different spouse, a better job, or more friends to have joy. What you need is to spend your life in the presence of Christ because all those worldly wonders are poor substitutes for him and only ultimately serve to distract us from the one who alone can satisfy our souls. Satan's great purpose is to distract us from the glory of Christ. He is so intensely jealous of the glory of Christ that he wants to be sure that you and I are looking everywhere but up. That's why in Hebrews again and again we've been hearing, fix your eyes upon Jesus, looking to Jesus. Why? Because our eyes naturally fall back down to this earthly stuff and we become distracted and we become disappointed and we fail to seek him, and we fall for it again and again, and our eyes become transfixed on this world. We walk by sight rather than by faith, only to find that the toys and treasures and pleasures of this world, the sum total of them, cannot substitute for the wonder of heavenly joy that we find in Christ. That's why 
So many people who have so much stuff can be so discontent. Moodiness and grumpiness and discontentment and a critical spirit are all signs that we expect from this world what only the heavenly world can provide. And and so I want to urge you, do a Psalm 139 self-test. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my anxious ways. God, do I reflect joy? Is my life filled with joy or am I constantly critical and complaining and discontent and thinking, you know, if I only had this, then I'd be happy. A little bit more money, a little better spouse, a little more free time. You know, if that's the tone and tenor of our heart, that's where our minds go when we have free time. It shows that we are looking to the wrong world for satisfaction and joy. This world cannot provide it. Only the baby born in Palestine 2,000 years ago can overcome those cosmic forces that devote so much attention to stealing your joy and ruining your soul by distracting you from following Christ. Let me give a word of warning to those who are not believers, who are not seeking the Lord Jesus. This world with all its frailties and weaknesses and imperfections is infinitely better than the world to come for those who do not trust in Christ. In this world, there's moments of happiness, albeit fleeting, but it will not be that way in hell. And so for those of you who say, I'm not interested in Jesus, I want to warn you. The miseries of hell are unimaginable. At least in this world, you get some respite, some fleeting happiness, but in hell, there is not one moment of happiness. It is all thirst and nothing to quench it. The joy paradox, I think as C.S. Lewis would call it, is that if you want real lasting joy, you have to stop looking in this world for it. Lewis says, Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How do we we enjoy this life to the utmost? By glorifying God. And what happens when we glorify God? We enjoy this life to the utmost because our eyes are fixed on the life to come. Joy is a byproduct of living your life in the presence of Jesus. And so we're to to look upward to Jesus today and always. And if you are constantly inundating and distracting yourself with worldly wonders, you will have no margin in your life to behold the glory of Christ. Have you, ever, have you ever seen a hoarder? Somebody who just, they don't throw away a thing, and their house becomes just filled with stuff, and there's no room for anything else. Our hearts are natural, idle, hoarding places. We've got to cast those things away, turn away from worldly wonders so that we can behold heavenly joy. Third, I want you to see nothing is impossible with God. 
This passage is going to stretch the mind of, of a secular reader, a baby. And notice that is what God, in his word, calls John a baby, not a mass of cells or a clump of cells, as our culture would call it, but a baby who leaps in the womb at the, in response to being in the presence of Christ. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? Do you think Luke was just sort of being poetic there? Let me tell you, if you can't believe in a baby that leaps in the womb, you're not going to believe what happens with the baby in Mary's belly. He's one day going to leap from the dead. It can be so easy to doubt the incredible power of God. It was that way in Mary and Elizabeth's time. You know, this is the the end of what's called the intertestamental period. There was no new scripture. In a lot of ways, God was silent for 400 years. And suddenly he speaks here. It, it was so shocking that, that Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, didn't believe it. And he was a priest of God. You know, it can be hard to believe. It can be hard to walk by faith. But believe we must. And in the incarnation of Christ, God did the impossible. He did exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. Uh, Just as difficult as it may be to believe that a baby in the womb could have such joy is the thought that you and I could have such joy as well through Christ. You know, Christmas is, is outwardly a joyful time, good news of glad tidings. But inwardly, many experience deep sorrow and loneliness and anxiety and grief. All of it seems to crest over us at Christmas time. But that darkness was eclipsed when the Son of God takes center stage in our hearts and minds. Here's how that works. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, God, who said light shine out of the darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What moves us to joy is not better circumstances, more money, more friends. It's nothing within ourselves. What moves us to joy is when God reveals himself to us in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And it is that sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that opens our hearts. And against everything we are told today, happiness is not found in ourselves or in our stuff, but in our Savior. Deep Lasting, satisfying joy is found in Christ alone. And the more you seek the Lord Jesus, the more he reorients you to a joy that, not, that rests not in what you have, but in who he is. Is that joy possible for you? Are you thinking that? Could I really have that kind of joy? I wonder if some have not given up on that. Is joy possible for me? I think the answer is no and yes. No, 
If you're going to continue to keep your eyes fixed on worldly stuff and worldly circumstances, that joy is impossible. It'll always be elusive. It'll always be just a fingertips reach away. It'll be addictively elusive. Just one more. But it will always elude. But with God, all things are possible. That's a good line, isn't it? I didn't make it up. Luke 137, as Mary hears the the incredible news and she says, how can this be? For I've never been with a man, the angel says to her, for nothing will be impossible with God. Seek joy without seeking God and it is an impossibility to ever find it. But seek God and you find endless joy that transcends circumstances, erases guilt, transforms grief, and transfixes your heart and mind upon a greater joy than all the sum total of earth's riches could ever combine. Praise God. How do we apply this text? Let me address the children first. Children, Satan has a great marketing scheme, and that is to deceive you into thinking that Christmas is all about what's under your tree. And that's a pattern that tends to carry us through life. We think that the things that can make us happiest are the things of this world. Children, that is going to be a relentless approach that Satan is going to take for the rest of your life. Every adult in here can can testify to that, that, that Satan wants you to think that the best things in life are things. Children, the best thing in life is Jesus. And he'll never fail you. And he'll never break. And he'll never expire. And he'll never run out. Many things will tempt you, children, but only Jesus can satisfy you. Parents, please work hard to teach your children that. You know, if you can only make Christmas exciting with material stuff, How will children ever get a thirst for God? If you're excited about Christ, they will be too. Not just one week a year, but 52 weeks a year. Labor now to always make the wonder of the coming King visible to your children's eyes. Second, it almost goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways. This text teaches us about the sanctity of human life. If you're not utterly convinced that abortion is murder, read this text again and again and again. John was filled with the Spirit even from the womb. Do you know what, you, what gets filled with the Spirit? Not things, not clumps of cells, but people. John the Baptist is a person in the womb. Rejoicing at the presence of another person in the womb. To approve of abortion would be to justify the killing of a person who, even in utero, is made to be a worshiping being. It's to seek to silence the worship of God. Finally, a word about Christians gathering in worship. I started by talking about this. I'm going to end with it. Mary and Elizabeth got together because they wanted to share a common joy that nobody else on earth understood. That's why we get together for worship, isn't it? We 
share a common joy that this world cannot comprehend. We come together because we are testifying that we have experienced this incredible miracle of the grace of God, a a miracle that, that our world knows nothing about. And so this passage, it reminds us that one of the reasons we gather in worship, whether it's Christmas Day or every other Lord's Day of the year, we come together because of the incomparable joy of being with others who have experienced the same wondrous work of God that you have. There's nothing like Christian fellowship because we have in common the greatest miracle ever done. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we praise you for the word, how it addresses us in the core of our souls, whatever we're facing, whatever we're going through, in whatever season of life, it always meets us, encourages us when we need encouragement, it challenges us when we need it. Lord, your word gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Help us to be mindful of what we 